Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, we'll be continuing on reading through Albert Camus' The Plague, going into part two. And what we'll be doing first of all is having a nice brief recap and going back over exactly what's happened in the story so far. So if you've not listened to at all the previous episode, don't worry, I'll be covering what happens within the story half of it and you'll be absolutely sorted. However, it's well worth going back to have a listen to for all the philosophical discussion that happens in that episode all about existential crisis. And so, after we've had that nice brief recap of what happened in part one, I'll then go and cover what happens in a very general way in part two, and then we'll be starting to get into the nice juicy discussion about what happens philosophically within part two. So then I'll be touching upon and starting to go deeper into it all, looking at the psychology when the town is in lockdown. And I thought this is such an interesting topic that Camus touches upon and discusses. And especially within our current situation with the whole COVID-19 pandemic and people in lockdown, it's such a great way for to relate the discussion in the plague to, again, our contemporary situation. And then rounding off, we have Camus give an ethics, and Camus argues for an ethics of decency. That's right at the end of part two, and it's very briefly touched upon, so it allows us to nicely flash it out exactly what does he mean by all this. And as already we've started to do as well, having a nice relation of these topics of the town psychology, as well as this whole ethics of decency, how can we relate that into our contemporary situation with COVID-19 as well as lockdown? So, let's get started into looking briefly of what's happened in the story so far in part one. So, there was an incredible amount of rats dying everywhere in the town of Oran, which is an Algerian coastal town and exists in real life and is not just a purely fictional place. So then, when... There's this whole amount of rats dying everywhere, more or less every couple of sentences. Then the local council arranges for the collection of dead rats, and then they're going to be taken to an incinerator. And what would happen in the town, or really anywhere, when you have this strange phenomenon of large masses of rats dying anywhere, there's mass anxiety. And so then the town panics, really, of this strange phenomenon that's going on. And then suddenly, without warning, the strange phenomenon suddenly stops and there's no more dying rats whatsoever. And here we have, at the same time as the rats are dying in vast quantities, 
Then we have the main protagonist, which is Dr. Ryo. He's noticing as he's doing his doctor's rounds and going around various different people as he does. He's noticing that people are starting to get these really weird symptoms that they're having these sort of various different ailments to them. And then people are not only getting ill, they're also dying from what they're getting. Then he suddenly realizes he has this eureka moment in which he's like, oh my god, it's the plague. And as we touched upon and delved into in a deeper way in the previous episode, this is a significant moment because he suddenly has that moment of existential crisis. Why is that? Touching very briefly upon it, because previously he didn't put all the pieces of the puzzle together. He simply saw various different people all get ill with similar symptoms. And then he suddenly has that eureka moment of putting all those puzzle pieces together, associating all the symptoms together, and then he realizes it's the plague. And as we said, it's touching upon that moment of existential crisis. Why? Because suddenly he went about in his daily routine as he did and treated people in his doctor's visits, going about his daily life without really that routine being interrupted. But here, when you have something like the plague and a pandemic going on, that's going to interrupt your daily life immediately. And not only of Dr. Ryu, of course, but everybody within the town. And so it's that whole moment of, oh my God, I can't just suddenly do my routine anymore. Something needs to happen. Uh, we need to address this problem. We need to address this situation. And it questions then, touching upon the deeper aspects of it, the very meaning of what he's doing. And how can he act? And he goes then into the local council, goes straight up to his local governor to ask for preventive measures to be put in place. Why is that? Because if they don't put any preventive measures in place, he sees that half the town are going to die. And so here's where part one gets a little bit more interesting as well. They do put in preventive measures, but they won't accept it as an actual plague taking place. But the measures are put in place as though it were the plague. And so there's this whole aspect of the council or the local government within Iran, really taking that whole aspect of denial of the event. And why do they deny that the event is taking place? Is because if they did accept him, then it would be to accept the horror of that situation and to accept the reality that half the town will die. And so in their own minds, if they don't accept that horror, then they're able to put in place everything without actually admitting it's a problem. And so it's really strange how that pushes into that field of trying to deny something that everybody can clearly see is happening in front of them. 
And then part one rounds off and finishes saying that the measures were insufficient, that they put in place, deaths increased every day, hospitals were absolutely full, and then other buildings had to be repurposed into hospitals such as schools. And so we really have the moment there in which just everything is starting to escalate. Or another good way of putting it is everything's starting to take a snowball effect within the town. And that then leads us nicely into part two for this week. And so, how does it start off? We have the fantastic discussion of Camus and where exactly have we ended up with the town next? What's happening after all the hospitals are starting to be cram-packed full of people? The town is then put into quarantine. The gates to the city are closed and no one can leave whatsoever. Families can return, but are not allowed to leave if they do choose to return. And it's said that only really a handful of families actually do come back. And most people want to have that separation in place for the fear of their own family safety, of course. Because if you're coming back into the town, that has the plague going on, you don't suddenly want your wife or children to also catch it. And so it's remarked upon that most people were willing to forego the separation. Only essential good shops can open, so we have very much like within the current situation, only the essential good shops, so your supermarkets, your post offices, your chemists and your doctors. And then due to this, lots of people are temporarily unable to work because suddenly all the shops that are not essential anymore are closed. In the first few weeks, everyone then has a casual attitude towards the plague and thought it was only going to be a temporary situation. People had a hard time accepting what was happening to them. They walked around town, visited cafes, and laughed together. Anything that affected their daily habits were seen as agitations, and this was seen in the call for the relaxation of the imposed measures. Even the weekly death figures and daily increases did not force people to think it was a horrible situation. And here I think we can really touch upon so much a comparable qualities exactly to our current situation with COVID-19. Everybody going about in a very casual way, not treating it seriously at all, even people just walking about without masks on, talking to people without keeping any social distance whatsoever, treating it not really as a serious situation, and just casually going about their everyday lives. And then again, what's so interesting, anything that affects that daily routine and daily habit of those imposed measures that are put in place are seen as an agitation. Why do you have to affect my daily routine? The, the people would ultimately be, be saying, oh, this is not serious whatsoever. I don't know why you have to interrupt my daily life in such a way. And you get that a lot within the whole anti 
imposed measures and so forth, protests and various different people all arguing that all these are just draconian. And this is just seen in the way in which the measures are highlighted as something that should be not even put into place whatsoever. There was a great example that was highlighted within the Daily Mail newspaper here in the UK, which that's the traditionally very conservative newspaper, in which within the very first few weeks of lockdown, they were highlighting the way in which, I think it was Sweden, didn't go into lockdown whatsoever, and that their numbers were still really low at the time. And so, what was that doing? It was sort of backing up what Camus saying there, the media is sort of portraying it back to people as well. The whole idea, well, why should this lockdown be in place? Look, other people are going about absolutely fine in other countries. Why shouldn't we be able to do so? Because their numbers are down. Therefore, why shouldn't we be allowed to also walk around? And of course, what then happened was that Sweden's numbers shot up eventually as well, which then sort of put aside that entire argument altogether, because then it goes into the nice bit there. The weekly death figures didn't force people to think it was a horrible situation. And again, reflecting upon our own situation, we do have these weekly numbers that are given out to us, and even daily figures, in which we're given a death toll every single day and how much people are infected. And Camus also touches upon this in part one as well. The whole sense of you just have a number, and the number itself seems very abstract. But here is where he also says, if it was 10,000 people that died, that equivalent is to, he says, five cinemas worth of people. And what we should do in that given situation is fill up those five cinemas bring the people out and have everybody see how much people that really is. Then you'll be able to have the immediate impact, of course, upon what those figures actually mean. Because it doesn't have to be, of course, 10,000. The whole point that Camus is trying to make is that those numbers are people's lives. Those numbers precisely are mothers, fathers, grandfathers, and even grandmothers, children, and so on. There's human lives attached to these numbers, and we shouldn't treat them as something that's simply abstract, but rather feel immense empathy. And that's the whole problem as well, is that lack of sort of empathy, just because it's a number that's always treated as this abstract thing. So let's continue on with our discussion of part two. So, a speech is given by Father Panilo, the local priest, in which he says the plague is a form of divine retribution against humanity. It's a form of sorting the wheat from the chaff. Everyone should reflect upon their actions and allow for them to accept God into their lives. If they do, he will provide everyone with salvation. As a nice line from that speech goes, the just have nothing to fear, the unjust should tremble. 
And in following this speech, people started to become aware of their situation. They're able to then reflect upon, in a more deeper sense, about their own lives and their daily routine in a way that wasn't apparent to them before. And when they did reflect upon their lives, people thought that they were like a prisoner being punished for some unknown crime and subject to an unimaginable term of imprisonment. Some people adapted to being shut in, whilst others wanted to escape from the prison with the thought of being confined for their whole lives. And following this, there skirmishes at the gates with the guards. And so the authorities fear a revolt taking place, and so worked with the media and the newspapers. The media emphasized the prohibition of going out of the town and the penalty of imprisonment if anyone attempted to do so. Patrols are created to kill cats and dogs to stop infection, and then this creates an atmosphere of panic in the town with the sporadic sound of gunfire. And really, the speech by the priest in part two is a really key pivotal moment within the whole chapter. And all the characters that are discussed in part two, out with of Dr. Ryu as well, all comment on this specific speech. So it's seen as a really significant moment within the overall story. And we could say, well, why is that the case? And why exactly did people suddenly have that eureka moment of, oh my god, it's the plague, when the priest had given his speech. And you could really think upon that and come to the conclusion that the people reflected upon what was happening to them because of reflecting on their own mortality. Why is that? Because it's by reflecting on our own mortality do we then have that moment of existential crisis as well. Usually it happens, of course, towards the end of our life, when we get on in age, is a nice way of putting it, and where people suddenly have that moment of, I'm nearing the end of what I think will be the end of my life. I've advanced in how much of a year that it is. Then suddenly people have that moment of crisis and either accept the fact that nothing is going to be there when they die, or that they'll adopt a religious outlook and, and accept that there's the possibility of an afterlife. And hence why it's usually in those moments towards our end of our lives, or as we advance in our age, that precisely we have those deep, critical, reflective moments upon our own mortality. But here, within the pandemic, you also have that deep reflection that most people normally have when they're in advanced age, because, of course, death is on your doorstep. It's happening all around you, and people are dying. And so, no 
longer can you just suddenly say, well, it's not going to happen to me, or that it'll be a long time until I have to think of such things. Now, suddenly everybody has to reflect upon their own mortality in a deep way. And it's really that focus and realization of death is the greatest possibility that then people have that moment of crisis and accepting of the pandemic to their life and accepting the plague is an event in such a way that Dr. Rio does in the story. And then through that realization, everybody has that panic of, oh my God, I'm a prisoner within these walls of the town. And as Camus says, some people adapt. Some people actually get on absolutely fine within lockdown. And then others, of course, want out because they reflect upon their situation and they want to escape the prison. They don't want to be incarcerated there for their entire lives. And so, let's come back to this because we're going to develop it out a bit more when we get deeper into part two about the discussion of lockdown and the psychology of that. I think this is worth a deeper dive into. And so continuing on with part two, there is a summer heat wave and a spike in deaths with going up to 700 deaths a day. This hardens the people of the town to death with people being indifferent to the sounds of the infected moaning in their houses. The number of deaths eventually dips, no longer being in the hundreds anymore. And newspapers try to play a battle of wits against the plague by scoring points against it, by getting lesser numbers of deaths every day. People drink alcohol and then suck peppermints as a superstitious way of defending themselves from the plague. And then we come into another key moment where health teams are organized. And this is a team of volunteers who risk their lives by providing preventive assistance in overpopulated areas. Some of the things they did, as Camus says, was checking out lofts and cellars that were not covered by the disinfection squads, helped doctors during home visits, transported plague victims to hospitals, and drove ambulances and hearses. And so again, here we have that moment of the number of deaths starts off within less than 100, and then it creeps up over 100, creeping up and up. It gets more terrifying. And within that as well, I think we can relate this all very much into the contemporary context, especially what's said about the media in which we have those daily death tolls and infection rates in which you very much do feel like the newspapers are trying to play, as Camus says, that battle of wits, trying to get one up somehow, some way, with a little bit of a dip, somehow they've won for that day. Just because there's a little bit less deaths, somehow that means there is less of a chance of everybody getting it. And this whole mentality that sort of built up a little bit in the media that just because there's a dip in deaths 
somehow that means that COVID is starting to go away or that it's not being as serious as what it once was. And it's complete rubbish, of course. And we saw that within the whole dip of deaths coming out of the first lockdown and dip of infection rates to the extent there was very little. And then, of course, everything escalated again and people are going back into lockdown again here in the UK. And then also, it's interesting to note how Camus says people will be superstitious in this situation because of doing certain things. They think they'll be defending themselves against the plague. An example that came to mind as well whilst reading this was the way in which it was said in newspapers here in the UK about smoking and somehow smoking was a good way of people defend themselves against the plague, which in itself is really bizarre because one of the things that COVID-19, of course, goes for and really tries to attack is people's lungs. So suddenly here you have smoking that is bad for your lungs, of course, trying to say and argue for that is something that's good against fighting COVID. A strange argument. But again, at foot, It goes into those points that Camus wants to make. Strange superstitious acts will be adopted as defense mechanisms, as a means of people trying to cope with a situation that's ultimately out of their control. And so let's go into Dr. Ryu then, because we've not said exactly what our main protagonist has been doing in part two. So with Many daily infections and deaths. Dr. Ryu is constantly busy visiting suspected cases. It's taken its toll on him being so overworked. There's not enough medical staff available and everything is stretched to its limits. During the first stages of the plague, he was sympathetic towards families who had a family member that was infected and then taken away. The families knew that there was a chance they might never see them again, and Dr. Ryu offered them a shoulder to cry on. However, it's said that Dr. Ryu becomes more abstract and more clinical in his approach. He runs from case to case, immediately calling for an ambulance before seeing the families, and he becomes indifferent to the suffering of the families. So here is really interesting that you have all that feeling of empathy and sympathy for the families from Dr. Ryu as they're taking infected cases away to the hospital. But at the same time, that starts to harden over a period of time, as well as that sense of a continual rush from case to case that's going on. And that whole tension that sort of talked about there within Dr. Ryu, that on the one hand, he does want to have pity for the families and their situations and does want to sympathize with them. But at the same time, he has to go and analyze so many cases on a daily basis, he simply doesn't have the time to always offer that shoulder to cry on. So there's always that tension at work between trying to be sympathetic but at the same time trying to go and do his job and get all the cases of infection to the hospital at the same time. And then we also have the reason for why he became a doctor 
come up and that's because he hates seeing people die and can never get used to it whatsoever. And this I think is a really important point here that we can touch upon in the medical situation because it's shown within TV series or maybe documentaries. There was one here on British TV that followed a young set of doctors going about and doing visits within the hospital and one of the patients died and one of the young doctors very much affected by it and a nurse who's older said it's just one of those things that you have to get used to. Here we have Camus argument against this to say death should not be something that we ever get used to or comfortable with. Death is horrific. Death is the loss of that person completely. That person is gone when they die. It's not something that we should ever become hardened to. And in the same way, just like those numbers of deaths, it's something that we should never just treat as an abstract thing. These are people. These are lives. And so here we can say, well, just because he's running from case to case doesn't mean to say he's hardened or doesn't have any sympathy whatsoever because the whole reason for why he's a doctor is because he doesn't want people to die and he wants to help them and wants to make them overcome their illness or infection and so on. And so we move from Dr. Ryu into another character called Raymond Rambert who is a journalist and he briefly appears in part one. As Camus says quite near the start of part two, those who were visitors, tourists, or if their job required travel, such as Raymond, who's a journalist, became exiles in the town. They had to suffer both the plague and their psychological torment in continually thinking of loved ones and recalling their memories of them. And Raymond Rambert has a girlfriend in Paris and his whole ambition is for him to desperately get out of the town and get back to her in Paris. He asks Dr. Rio for a certificate to say that he's not infected. And Dr. Rio replies that it's not possible. He cannot guarantee he will not be infected whilst making a journey to the gates. There is lots of others in the same situation. But the rules are that no one can leave whatsoever under any circumstances. Rambert tries official means of leaving by visiting the offices of civil servants and the reply is like Dr. Ryu's. There is lots of others in his situation and if they made an exception for him, they would have to make an exception for everyone else. Rambert then tries a legal means of escape. There is a series of meeting with people and then he meets footballer Gonzalez who will help him escape. This means of escape is by staying with two guards who are being paid off. It will be up to the guards' discretion for them to get him out at the right time. Gonzalez arranges a meeting place but does not turn up. Rambert then goes through the original set of meetings to meet him again. 
he finds out that the lower districts have been blocked off, so it's difficult for Gonzalez to get past the roadblocks. He meets Gonzalez again, and they attempt to meet the guards who Rambert was going to stay with, yet they do not turn up to the agreed location. Another meeting is set up for the following day, and the way in which part two rounds off is with Rambert feeling dejected and meets with another character, Jean Tarot and Dr. Ryu. And then Raymond asks in the very last few sentences if he can work for Dr. Ryu until he manages to find a way out of town. And so really we have that sort of love story with Rambert that's going on, who's desperately in love with his girlfriend, of course isolated from her in the entire situation, and wants any way possible, tries his utmost to get back to her, goes to various different government offices, always states his case that he's a journalist, he's living in Paris, he doesn't normally live in Iran, please let me get out of here, and of course the reply is always the same, we cannot make an exception for you, otherwise everyone in your situation would also have to be excused and allowed to return to wherever it is. And so then, we have that whole aspect of him trying to get out by illegal means and meeting all these various different shady underground characters. And so then he tries to, of course, meet up with Gonzalez and then the guards. And it's that just continual dejection of him just continually trying again and again and again and again and again to the nth degree to get out because he loves his girlfriend and he wants to be with her. And you could only feel sympathy for Rambert as a character as well. Because here we're really seeing the passion and conviction that we can have for each other. And as well as for our partners and for our loved ones. In the sense of wouldn't we ourselves in that given situation. Not all of us are going to resign ourselves. But rather there is going to be those people that are going to try to do everything in their power to get out. And so then let's delve a little deeper into the philosophical context of what's going on within part two. So what I thought was great to come back to is the discussion of lockdown and the psychology of that. Because... One of the key aspects of part two is Camus' psychology and psychological analysis of people under lockdown and their mentality, as he states that they adopt a prisoner's mentality. And of course, I've always got a great quote. As the quote says here, the sermon made people more receptive to the notion which remained vague up to then. They were condemned for some unknown crime to an unimaginable term of imprisonment, and while some carried on with their little lives and adapted being shut in, for others, on the contrary, their sole idea was to escape 
from this prison, suddenly becoming conscious of a kind of incarceration, they felt in some vague way that this confinement threatened their whole lives. This drove them to desperate actions. The people of the town were really starting to become aware of their situation. And so this whole prisoner's mentality is something that keeps on coming back to and is mentioned quite a number of times in part two and is also, as I've started into part three, came up again. And this whole idea of being confined like a prisoner within the town. And as you can see here, not only do we have the reflection of the people of a sense of reflecting upon their own mortality because of death being all around people. But also, another aspect of it is this prisoner-like mentality because of this whole sense of confinement. And here we can really say, well, in what ways are the population prisoners and really flash this out? Because we can say that in lockdown, we also share a comparable situation with prisoners in the actual sense of our freedom has been restricted. We're told what to do, wear masks, be hygienic, wash your hands, and social distance. Keep two meters apart from everyone, as it is here in the UK. Where we can go only to essential places, and our actions are monitored if we are infected or not. So we have those three senses in which our freedom is restricted. We're told what to do, where we can go, and our actions are being monitored. We are potentially separated from families and loved ones if we live in a different part of the country or live in a different country altogether. And one example of that, of course, is students having come over to start their studies at the new term are going to be separated from their loved ones, as well as people who do jobs that they have to work in different places around the country. And then we can get into the whole aspect of what then happens to those people and students separated off from everybody is reflecting upon the memories of loved ones as well as reflecting upon past actions and thinking about what we could have done differently or acted in a better way. And so here is a really interesting aspect that Camus reflects upon is how we remain trapped to our own memories and the way in which our memories of people will ultimately make us incredibly nostalgic on the one hand and wanting things to be a certain way and wanting us to be with our loved one. But at the same time is we are not with the loved one in that given situation. But it's always imagining, well, just the ring of the phone, just the knock at the door, as it says in part two, imagining those things happening. Suddenly, it's the loved one on the phone, loved one coming through the door. 
And so those memories as well all act and affect us on that continual basis as they reoccur. As well as thinking upon the actions, as it says there, what could I have done differently? How could I have acted better? We start to think upon our own actions and reflect in a more ethical way there as well, even if it is in a very novel sense, in that maybe I could have done more for my girlfriend at this given moment, or maybe I should have called my mother more, maybe I should call her now, and all those little moments of how we can act better and do better things potentially for our loved ones in the future. And so Camus also talks about those people that don't have loved ones and are single, and those are the people, he says, who are resigned to wander around places in the town, like cafes or parks, and reminisce about their past experiences of those places, having that great cup of coffee, having that wonderful experience, or walk around the park, for instance. And then another example is lovers, in which he says, lovers will be growing jealous and suspicious of the other person's actions, of course, paranoid in the sense that will they be cheating on me or no? How can I be sure they're being faithful to me because I'm separated out from them? And one of the main ways you can get around that in a contemporary context, of course, would be, well, you can just phone them or maybe you can just call them on Skype or WhatsApp or some sort of form of video communication and you would be able to have a direct means of seeing the other person as well. And here's where it gets interesting again because the town cuts off all forms of communication except telegrams because they see any forms of communication as a means of in spreading the infection around, and so they don't want that. And of course, this is written from 1942 to 1947, well before we have the modern conveniences, of course, of the internet. And so we really have to think back into all those previous forms of communication, letter writing, as well as telegrams, as it says which would really add to an incredible amount of paranoia, especially if you could only communicate via telegram, in which you only have 10 words to say everything you want to say to the other person. And then when Camus says what usually is said, of course, is the cliches. I love you, thinking of you, I miss you, and so on. And so really rounding off on that discussion of the prisoner's mentality, we, we can say people are both actual prisoners because of the lockdown, but they're also prisoners to their memories and their mind at the same time. And so again, we have a nice tension at work. The actual situation is like a prison and that prisoner-like mentality, but also we remain trapped to our own memories. And through recalling all those memories and thinking about what we could have done differently or placing ourselves in cafes when they're closed as we walk by them. And so let's move on from this prisoner's mentality then into the ethics of decency. 
And so one of the themes that runs through part two is one of those questions that really starts to pop up with the creation of the health teams. How can we act? How can we fight the plague? And joining the health teams is one way in which you can fight the plague because you're acting in a beneficial way to society by helping prevent the spread of infection. And we've got a great quote as well from Dr. Ryu that really builds upon this whole idea of an ethics of decency. As it says there, which is towards the end of part two, this whole thing about fighting the plague is not heroism. It's about decency. The only way to fight the plague is with decency. In general, I can't say what decency is, but I know it consists in doing my job. Itself, as a quote, is really interesting, isn't it? This whole thing about the fighting the plague is not heroism. Now, we have within the current context of heroism, one in which is also made by the media, is the fantastic work that's done by the health workers. And here in the UK by all the people in the NHS, all the people in the hospitals working to fight COVID-19. They're all seen as forms of heroic people doing battle against infection. Here we have a questioning of the idea of heroism. And that's, of course, not to take away from any actions done by people, but rather to try and challenge this idea and model and privilege in a certain way in which ethics works. Because when we start to move in towards decency and an ethics of decency, it's no longer just a few people that are heroic, but rather it's an ethics in which we can all act in a manner that's doing the decent thing. So heroic actions are always based upon a very select few people doing heroic actions for the greater good of society. But here is not based upon heroism or doing heroic actions, which is to seek also praise for what you're doing. There's that whole, yes, they're doing fantastic actions and they should be praised. Here, doing a decent thing, you don't want to be praised. You do it because it has to be done. In the same sense of Dr. Ryu does his doctor's rounds because it's the decent thing to do and it's his job to be done. And neither is it doing the right thing that will eventually pay off or eventually benefit us. In the sense of like a Christian ethics, for instance. Why would we help out our fellow man? Why would we be the good Samaritan? You can say, well, you would help out someone because you would earn merit points. You would, through doing all good actions, that would lead you into achieving heaven in the afterlife. Here, again, the ethics of decency is not based upon achieving any sort of goal like heaven. And neither, again, is it based on heroism. As we said... It's for Dr. Ryu to do his job as a doctor, 
to help others is a decent thing to do. It's also a decent thing, and is said by Dr. Ryu as well, for Rambert to want to go back to Paris to be with his girlfriend, as he doesn't want to be separated and alone. So, what can we say then about an ethics of decency is one that applies to everyday people and their situations, not upon a select few. We immediately think, of course, of the fantastic action done by emergency services is another example of who all do the decent thing every day by saving people's lives. But it's also a decent thing is working at the post office or being a hairdresser. There's no privileged ideal position over others. In this way, it's doing a right action because it's the decent thing to do and not to accept anything in return for it. The feel-good aspect in it is having done the action itself. And so here, let's take an example of superheroes. And you can say that is a nice way in which traditional ethics works because you have a certain model for how you should act as well as a set of tenets and principles. And this will all be based upon a certain person or caricature of how you're meant to act as the ideal person performing these actions. And if we go to superheroes as an example, that's fantastic. You have a built-in ethical system within the superhero model. The superheroes themselves are portrayed as ultimate good. You have the villains and the criminals as bad. Therefore, you already have the tenant built in. The superheroes who are good will uphold justice and the law and punish those people who are criminals. And so, how can we apply Camus to this situation? You don't privilege someone like Batman or Superman or any superhero, but rather you privilege all the hard-working people, well, in this given case, within the context of Metropolis, which is Superman City, or Gotham City, which is Batman City. All those hard-working people doing the decent thing every day, working away. Why do they do it? Because it's the decent thing to do. Why does the man do nine to five every day? Because it's the decent thing to do. He wants to provide for his family. So what do we have as an ethical model? Not privileging simply one man is how you should act like Batman. And if you take Batman as your ideal, you can pick away at it and problematize it immediately. It's an unrealistic example because it doesn't represent everybody. It's based upon a billionaire who is incredibly rich and has the expenses to afford all that luxury in the first place and technology that makes him Batman in the first place. Same thing if you go into the more fantastical with Superman. He's an alien who has superpowers that then goes out and protects human beings. What stops him from being a monster or a villain himself because he's an alien, is through his own human attachment that he had to his parents growing up on the farm and that whole sense of community and so on that he got in Smallville. Although we do have nice spin-offs in which Superman is the villain. 
But equally with Superman, you can say, well, again, that's an unrealistic example. Here's a person who is literally superhuman. He can do things that are physically impossible to do. And so, what is the fantastic example of what exactly is Camus saying here? Is that he doesn't have a particular model. It is precisely applicable to everybody who do their job and... Why do they do it? It's the decent thing to do. Dr. Ryu does his job. He wants to help others because he doesn't want them to die. That's a decent thing to do. Why does the mother go about every single day taking her kids to school to be educated? Because it's the decent thing to do, to have educated children and so on. So suddenly we don't have an ethical model that's based on a minority or even one in which it's physically impossible to near enough achieve the ideal of but here we have a much more human outlook and to say well here is something that applies to everybody and can also be beneficial to everybody's lives as well as showing the benefits of what everybody does in their lives at the same time. Because that's also another part of ethics that's problematical. It immediately takes everything that what you do and says, wait a minute, it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because you need to follow us. Why is that the case? Because we're right and you're wrong. There's that whole sort of sense of egoism within it. And here again, within the whole ethics of decency, there is no sort of privileging of one model over others. As we said, it allows for medicine, it allows for hairdressers. There's no specific one right way of doing anything, nor one right model in which anybody should live their lives. It's much more open and much more freer for people to choose what they want to do in their lives and what they think is the decent thing to do. So, let's take this example then of the prison mentality, as well as the ethics of decency, and pop this back into our contemporary situation. So we can say that lockdown made us all feel like prisoners in our own homes as people were only allowed outside for essential travel, as in to go to the supermarket or the chemist, and then what did lockdown allow us to do was reflecting on our lives, thinking of loved ones, our actions, as well as having that comparison to the people in the town in the sense of being trapped to our memories. And so we have a nice sort of overlap here with the first part because of the relation back into existential crisis and forcing us to reflect upon things and confront our daily routines and confront our lives in such a way that we weren't doing so before because what were we doing before is just going through the routine, going through the motions, as you might say. But once you're forced to confront that, then you start to ask the more deeper philosophical questions about meaning and value. What value does this have to my life? What does exactly this mean to me? 
and so on. So then we have also that lovely comparison in part two with the prisoners and this whole prisoner-like mentality and trying to get comfortable in our own homes, let's say, and find various different activities to keep ourselves entertained by, as well as having that whole relationship into family and loved ones and and being able to communicate with them, thankfully in the age that we live in, through Skype calls, through WhatsApp, through various different means of video communication. And then that all builds upon the whole ethics of decency, of course, because we then say, well, to do the decent thing for our own life is something as simple as just giving our parents a phone call to check on their well-being, how are you doing today, mom and dad, or contacting grandparents as well. And there's always that sense, especially here in the UK, about the amount of infractions that's happening in care homes. And you just think what a tragic situation that is. But at the same time, it's also a sense of tragedy through all the amount of perhaps loss of family contact for them at the same time. And that the decent thing, of course, for us to do is just pick up the telephone and just have just a brief conversation with grandparents to see how they're getting on. And then another aspect about the ethics of decency as well is what all parents were forced and confronted to do with all the schools closed was that whole aspect of not only being a parent but also then being a teacher at the same time and forcing ourselves to revisit those childlike problems that we faced, putting ourselves back in our children's shoes, suddenly faced with the problems that they do have within mathematics, for instance, or within various different other disciplines that they have to do, suddenly you have to go, wait a minute, how do I do that again? And then go and investigate that again, and then assist your own children through their education. Of course, that's another whole decent thing for us to do is to help children along in their own education. Give them a nice nurturing hand is a nice metaphor. And then, of course, there was that massive celebration of the NHS in the UK and people clapped outside in a gesture of solidarity and praise for all the health workers' actions and all the care workers as well for those people that's working in care homes. But here we can say, well, using Camus' ethics of decency, we don't only just praise the NHS workers, of course, doing absolutely amazing and fantastic jobs, but also all the other workers at the same time and people who did their job, like the supermarket staff, who are keeping the supermarket shelves stocked with food, as well as the delivery drivers for the supermarkets delivering food to people's doors, and then all the other people who continue to work during the pandemic as well. So 
it allows again that whole ethics of decency not just to privilege a few but to also try and then apply that in a much more broader sense to everyone who's doing the decent thing in their lives caring for their family and doing their job because of that so overall rounding often what can we say in lockdown, we all have a prisoner's mentality. We are both prisoners in the actual sense of having our freedom restricted and psychologically by our process of reminiscing on memories or wanting to be with others. As in part one, we are forced to confront our lives. We're forced to reflect upon our past actions and confront the current meaning of our life. Camus advocates an ethics of decency for how we should act and a way for us to fight a pandemic. This is for all of us to do the decent thing, not seeking to be heroic. This applies to all of us doing our bit because it's the decent thing to care for others as well as care for ourselves. So then in the next episode, we'll be continuing on through the discussion of Camus' The Plague going into part three. Many thanks for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed my discussion of Camus' The Plague part two. Feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Tip me a coffee at coffee.com forward slash dissecting philosophy ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy drop me an email at my address dissecting philosophy at gmail.com and lastly i can be found on twitter at i am a rubber man many thanks for listening and i hope you'll join me next time <laughs>